God calls us to a time of fellowship with these words. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. The mountain of God, the dwelling place of Jehovah, we just sang about it, the secret place where God abides. It's the sanctuary of the Lord. God dwells with his people. The worship of God's people is the foretaste of that dwelling on high. This morning, the word is preached so that we can foretaste that. Christ is here in our midst as it is being preached. We can hear his word as we listen to the preaching this morning. Listen diligently. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Haggai. If you would, and turn in your bulletins to that insert, so you can follow along, take notes, and hopefully learn better with that uh, page before you. So the last, uh, ten, I guess it's been 10 years now, and I haven't been preaching on the prophets for 10 years, but um, I started 10 years ago on the, the, actually 11 years ago, on the prophets. And uh, you, in your outline, you've got the, a, a list of all the prophets we've looked at thus far, their dates, who they're written to. And uh, <clears throat> we're now on the 14th prophet, um, Haggai. And then the next one is Zechariah, which is right next in your Bible. And the last one is Malachi. Um, so the last three prophets will be what we'll be looking at um, uh, as we wrap up this series um, Haggai is this wonderful passage, a wonderful book. It's very short. It's not the shortest of all the prophets, but it's a very short book, and you can easily read it in one a sitting. And I encourage you, if you haven't already begun, um, this week and coming weeks, just, just read it every day. Um, and after a week or two, you'll have a really good idea of the content and the flow of this great um, uh, prophecy. So Haggai is the text we're looking at. This is an introduction to this text, to this uh, prophecy this morning. So we're going to begin by reading just verse 1. Verse 1, this is God's word. And as our God is a king and a glorious king who speaks, let us stand out of reverence and respect for our Lord. As we read his word. Hear now the word of our king. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to prophet to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, I'm sorry, Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, "As Father, reading of God's word. Let's let's pray together." Father, thank you for the privilege of worship and the privilege of coming each, each Sabbath, each Lord's Day, and adoring you, enjoying you, and now, Lord, feasting upon you in your word. God, we pray for this meal that you'd abundantly bless it to our spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. Give me grace to preach your word with fidelity, and, and Lord, help us to understand your word that truly we would be a men and women built up upon the word. 
um, standing upon it and it alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. As many of you know, or most of you know, the, the impetus for this series arose because of a couple experiences I have had in my Christian walk, the earliest of which occurred when I was just saved. So I'd been saved about six months, going to a church, and by that time I had learned um, some of the controversies facing the church, like the sufficiency of, of Christ was a big one. The sufficiency of God's word. Um, the question of the worship wars. How to worship God. What's the, what is the biblical proper way of worshiping him? Um, things like uh, continuing a revelation. Is this it? The charismatic gifts, uh, miracles, tongues, prophecy. And I remember at that time as a young Christian, wondering, wishing that God would speak just one more time into the darkness and give us a definitive word. And it wouldn't have to be much, just yes, no, no, yes, you know, nothing, nothing big, but just one more revelation. As time went by in my Christian walk, and as I, I grew, I, of course, was studying God's word, and eventually I stumbled upon the prophets. And in my estimation, the prophets were a forbidden section of scripture because I was aware of Ezekiel 1. If you've read Ezekiel 1, that's how most people think the uh, prophetic corpus is in the Old uh, Testament. It's just mystery. It's just words that mean absolutely nothing, or at least um, uh, connotations that mean absolutely nothing. Read Ezekiel 1, and you'll know what I'm, I'm getting at. If you've read it, you know it. That's how most view prophecy, and that's how I did. And so I began reading the uh, prophets and studying them, and what I discovered blew me away. These books are the Old Testament epistles. We love the epistles in the New Te- uh, Testament, the exhortations, given to the churches, struggling with various things, and clarity and and exhortations as to what those things mean and what they ought to do in in response to them. That's the prophetic uh, corpus in the Old Testament. They're the epistles of the Old Testament written to God's people, proclaimed to uh, to God's uh, people to encourage them and direct them and instruct them. And as I studied, the more I studied, the more I realized we don't need another revelation from God. We don't need God to speak into the darkness with regards to the controversies facing us today. They're all addressed in the Old Testament prophetic work. As I study them, I realize, wow, it's addressing the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, the sufficiency of his word, God's plan, God's will, God's place, mysticism in worship, etc., etc. They're addressed. And so, 2010... It was my desire to introduce you all to this incredible section of scripture with, with, with quite a few goals, one of which was that you would feel comfortable in the, in the, uh, the prophets. Very few here would not feel comfortable in the epistles of the New Testament. Ephesians, Galatians, Corinthians, you read, oh yeah, I love these, these books. My hope is, is that you will get that, uh, you will be that uh, way, your disposition towards the prophetic work will be that way as well. I love these books. They're, you know, amazing. Yes, there's things in them that I don't understand, as they are in the epistles. Being baptized for the dead, what in the world does that mean? I don't know. Um, you know, what does that mean? So, um, same thing in the old. What, what does that mean in this Old Testament uh, epistle in Ezekiel chapter 1, chapter 2? What does that mean? I, I don't know. It just means God's awesome. 
Okay, so hopefully you will, you will feel comfortable opening up a prophet. Secondly, I want to introduce you to them so that each one of them, you can say, oh good, I understand the background. Boy, to understand that what, that what epistles of the New Testament were written in prison, it's helpful to realize when Paul says rejoice, Lord, always again I will say rejoice. He's saying that from a prison cell. It's easy for anyone to say that he was in a castle, but he's in a prison cell. Wow. Hey, it's incredible to, to, how to realize what these books, um, who are they written to, and what was going on. So that's my goal, is to give you a, a basically an overview, a survey, to understand what these books are that you and I might, might take and feast. If the Old Testament is two-thirds of the Bible, which it is, the prophetic work is one-half of the Old Testament, which means it's a third of the Bible. A third of the Bible. May God give us the grace to be students of all thirds of the Bible, not just the one to two, but all, all three. All right, so this morning we're looking at Haggai. And as we approach this text again this morning, my goal is to give you a general introduction as I, has been my practice with all of the prophets. And so this morning, let me introduce you to this book generically. First, let me give you the backstory. And to do that, I'm going to bring you back in your mind. We're going to do a quick plane flight through redemptive history. And I'm going to bring you back to the beginning when God made this world. When he made this world, this is so important, he made this world to be a kingdom. A kingdom over which he and his image bearers would rule. That was God's plan. And by way of footnote, if you look at the beginning, you get a good insight into where God's going. Because what we fell from is where God's bringing us back to. At the end time, the second coming of Jesus Christ, Revelation eleven fifteen tells us that at that moment, the angels will cry saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. Brothers and sisters, God began ruling over this world as his kingdom. And we're going to end, you and I, co-reigning with Christ over the world, ruling and reigning as kings and queens, princes and princesses. All right, but mankind, you know the story, rebelled against God, seeking autonomy from God's authority, from his majesty, buying the lie that they could be free to do whatever they wanted, like Satan was, who isn't. They became slaves. They became um, bond slaves of Satan. Miserable. And the world was plunged into misery, into decay, into violence, and sadness, and sickness, and sin. Well, God was not willing to allow his people or his kingdom to be toppled. So God deigned to himself come and be bound by the same law that Adam was, that condemned man, that he fell from. So God became a man, upheld that law, and, um, and then he died. And he died in the place of man. It's a sacrificial death. He gave man the life he earned, and he took upon himself the death that we earned. That's the gospel. And that was proclaimed in Genesis 3.15, as early as Genesis 3.15. And thus, Genesis 3.15 onwards is the outworking of this redemptive plan. It's the story of this redemptive plan worked out in history, in time, by God's grace. Now, I'm going to skip ahead. When we get to the time of Abraham... Genesis 12, God then brought the gospel, the gospel that you and I believe in and love and trust and are nourished by. Galatians tells us he preached that to Abraham. And so from, from Genesis 12 on, God um, entered, he, he, he explicitly told his people, 
um, what it means to have a saving relationship with him. He, we, we enter that era of the clan, of the family, where God's people now individually are redeemed by the Redeemer. Well, fast forward, because God's plan was to, is to reign and rule with you and me in a kingdom over this world. God as a type to give us a foretaste and to teach God's people what it is to be kingdom citizens, he ordained in Moses the theocracy. And then with Saul, the theocratic nation. And so with Moses onward, you've got this, as I've described it, a dual standing before God. Individually, we stand before God according to his grace. Unconditionally, we'll never lose that. We can never lose the salvation God's given us by grace in Jesus Christ. And we learn that as far back as Abraham, if not before. However, with the theocratic kingdom, with the theocracy, God's people as a, as a group, as a theocracy, as a nation, stood before God conditionally on the basis of their conduct, their corporate conduct as a people, as a nation. And God was very clear in Leviticus 26 and, and Deuteronomy um, that, God, that, that, that the uh, well-being of the nation was based upon what God's people did. You have to see, brothers and sisters, that this kingdom that God established at this time, the theocracy, was never intended to be eternal. It was a shadow, a picture of an eternal kingdom, Jesus Christ, his regency, his reign, which someday you and I will once again be in in a physical way. The new heavens, the new earth. And all of redemptive history is marching towards that point. So because of that, God established the theocracy, the theocratic nation under Saul and forward. But it was never his plan to keep it that way. And thus, what did God's people do as was warned? God's people in time rebelled. And if you read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, into the Chronicles, you'll read the sordid history of how the nation rebelled against God. Um, and so 931, the, the one uh, nation, the theocracy, broke into two halves. The north, Israel, the south, Judah. And in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom wiped off the face of the earth. 586 B.C., the southern kingdom, wiped off the face of the earth. And at that point, if you and I were living at that moment in redemptive history, you might think that God is not God, that our view of God's false, that the false gods might be the real God, because what happened? But you know the story from Daniel. As God's people went into the exile, they were met with these decrees that Nebuchadnezzar was issuing at that moment where God single-handedly was humbling that ruler, proclaiming that, that the God of the Bible, Yahweh, is the only true God. He's the only sovereign God, the only great God, the great awesome God. So God's people marching into exile are being told by their captors, your God's the greatest God. And during this time as well, Jeremiah prophesying, telling God's people that in 70 years, God's going to restore you. So this wasn't the end of the story. It's a small hiccup. The theocracy's gone because the focus is not the theocracy, but the regency of Jesus Christ, where at this point, everything's pointing to. And so God's people received promises. And, and sure enough, in time, God would bring his people back into the promised land, according to the promise of Jeremiah. 
70 years, beginning in 605. So in 538 B.C., the decree was proclaimed God's people could go back home. So during this, this, this era of sorrow and sadness, God's people nevertheless had hope because his redemptive program was not done. Notice the comments of Joyce Baldwin. Get this excellent description. I'm going to quote the whole thing. Both of God's people at this time as well as God's purpose. Notice, the best part of a lifetime separated the deportations of 597 and the first return in 538. The common feeling among the exiles was that they might as well be dead. Their bones were dried up and their hope gone, Ezekiel 37. From a human standpoint, they were right. It would have been hard to find any reasonable ground for hope, but to Ezekiel came a vision of resurrection. God would recreate his people, reunite the two kingdoms under a Davidic head, which ultimately is Jesus Christ, and set his sanctuary among them once and for all. The encouragements of Isaiah chapters 40 through 48 laid new stress on election and covenant. The great creator still counted Israel his servant and Jacob his chosen, and therefore they need not fear. He had blotted out their transgressions for his own sake and planned their return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Cyrus was designated by name as the anointed of the Lord to fulfill his promise. Suddenly there was a glorious future ahead because they had an incomparable God who saw fit to forgive the past and plan redemption. The very heavens and earth would witness the declaration, the Lord loves him. That's this era, all right? So 539, Belshazzar is the last Babylonian king. He's killed by Cyrus. And Cyrus coming into his kingdom now, now he's taken over all of Babylon, which was a massive geography. He wanted to solidify that nation. Now, as you may know, all the kings prior to Cyrus, when they conquered a land, they kept order by transportation, right? You'd conquer land, you'd transport all the wealthy, educated, powerful, strong people to other parts of your kingdom, knowing that you're not going to die for land that's not your own. So that's how kings kept order in the ancient world, which is why you have the deportation, 722, 605, 597, 586. Cyrus came in, and he didn't necessarily conquer a new people group. He just conquered Babylon. He killed a king, which made him in charge of the entire nation. So he had to solidify power. And the way he did that was by unifying the nation. And he did that by appeasing them. He issued decrees to support and encourage all of the different religions of his kingdom. And one religion was Judaism. And so in 538, he made a decree Not that God's people could simply go home, but that God's people were to go home and rebuild the temple. He gathered all of the stuff that was taken into exile from that temple, gave it to this group of people, and they came back back, uh, to the promised land. Now you would think, with that uh, decree, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Jews would be going right back home because God had delivered them according to Jeremiah's word. But shockingly, of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Jews living in Babylon, only 42,360 people came back. That's it. Now, that may sound like a lot of people. 42,360 people as a lot of people. 
But in comparison to all of those who stayed, it was nothing. It was, remember Daniel. That was the reason why Daniel in chapter 10 is so discouraged. The, de- the decrees made, and this is it? This is it, God? This is all that you're going to bring back home? Only 42,000 people? Where's the people who love God? Where's their passion? MacArthur wrote, you got the quote there, the people didn't go back. They were comfortable. They were sufficiently paganized. They were enmeshed in the society in which they lived. They were prosperous. They were absorbed. They were too involved to care about the promised land, too involved to care about the rebuilding of Jerusalem, too involved to care about restoring the temple. Which means the 42,360 people, most of them, of course there'd be people there who were rabble, who in Babylon had, were at a dead end and thought, well, things couldn't be worse there. So no doubt they, some of those people wore them. But by and large, the vast majority of the 42,000 people who returned, they were the Green Berets. They were the men and women who loved God, who were passionate about his worship and passionate about his glory. Zephaniah, recall that uh, prophet. Um, Zephaniah, God gave this uh, prophecy, Zephaniah 3. I will gather those, this is in the exile, I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts that came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Those are the people who would return. They came from Zion, they're going back. And they're grieved, and they're burdened for God's glory. They want God to reign. They want the world to see God reign. And so the the vast majority are these people who were passionate, most passionate for Christ, most passionate for God. So they returned. As we'll see in a little bit, they got there. And the nation or the city was in ruins, the temple destroyed. It wasn't very long before they were there that they began losing their zeal. That brings us to the prophet. That's the background. Haggai 1.1, we read the second year of Darius the king. On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai. If you look at um, um, Ezra, you will read that he's always called the prophet Zechariah is the son of Edu, but, but, but this man's the prophet, which tells us he needed no introduction. He was, there are many prophets, but that's the prophet. He's the guy, okay? His name, Chag, in the Hebrew, Chag, it means feast. And that he's named Haggai, which means my feast, tells us that some dad was delighted on a feast day because his wife gave him a son. So he named him, this is my feast. So Haggai most likely was born on uh, feast day. Beyond that, we know very little. Jewish uh, tradition holds that Haggai was raised in Babylon. He came from Jerusalem, raised in Babylon, and then came back. And Haggai chapter 2, verse 3 bears that out a bit. It says, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? The implication by that a question you can read on is that Haggai saw the, the temple in its glory. So he's the one saying, Who here? Do you remember it? I saw it. Do you remember how, how, how glorious that that building was? So it's believed Haggai is a very old man. Probably late 60s into his 70s, possibly 80s, depending on which deportation he, he went to Babylon on and what his age was. He had to be old enough to remember the temple. 
Um, so he's an older guy. Zechariah, as we'll see in the coming weeks, is a young man, a young prophet. But Haggai's the older guy. And he's there as this older sage, this older statesman, coming in as God's prophet and proclaiming the word of God to a, dep- to a depressed, downcast people. That brings us to the actual prophecy itself, the, the, uh, the book. From the dates, you've got a little chart there in your notes. From the dates uh, that Haggai gives us, or the date indicators that Haggai gives us, Haggai's ministry here in Haggai spanned all of 15 weeks. That's it. 15 weeks. Now, we know from, from um, Ezra chapter 6, he's there at the finishing of the, the temple, which took four years. So the date is 520, and it would take four years to rebuild the temple. And he's still there. So he ministered longer than just 15 weeks. But the actually prophetic uh, words that you have in your, in your lap right now, those were given over the course of, of, of 15 weeks, four different um, revelations that God gave this prophet to give to God's people. The first message, 1, 1 through 11, dealt with the fruitlessness and the fruit of fruitlessness. The consequences of fruitlessness in our Christian lives. Then chapter 1, 12 through 15 is the second one. Details the zealous response of God's people and what caused that zealousy. Haggai 2, 1 through 9, third message, deals with the discouragement that came from trying to rebuild that temple. He ministers to them and their discouragement there. And then the fourth message came in two parts, same day. Haggai 2, 10 through 19, first spoke of the true nature of God's work. And that, brothers and sisters, what they were doing right now is they were beginning a new era, a new age. If you can think of the Messianic kingdom with Jesus Christ as the course, Haggai and the 520, Zechariah and Malachi, these were the prereqs. Each one of these books represents a teaching, a school, if you will, a class which were the prerequisites. But get this, they're the prerequisites to getting the main study which is necessary. So even though they're not there yet, we're not at the new covenant era, nevertheless, at this moment, this is a climactic moment for God's people because they are at, the, at this time where God is beginning the end. Okay, and so this is that time, and this, the second message describes the significance that Zerubbabel held in God's kingdom as a type and, and a fore, uh, forerunner of Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, that's this prophecy, in essence. And if you were to, to look at it and in, a, in a separate book, there'd be a dedication page, and that dedication page would read like this, from God. This book, or, or Haggai, is dedicated to spiritually devout, passionate people who have lost their zeal. That's what this book's for. It's written to people who, are, who, are, who have a zealousy for, for, uh, for God, who love Christ, who have a passion to serve him and see him reigning, but for whatever reason you find your heart is cold, your eyes are dry, Christianity and your relationship with, with God has become somewhat formalistic, somewhat distant. What are we doing? That's the book of Haggai. Now, how does God create zeal, lift us up, and give us zeal? That's one of the themes of this book, and we're going to focus on that in the time that we've got left. And that is 
Kingdom zeal arises when we see that a sovereign Lord holds his people in his hands. Notice with me, chapter 2. I want to look with you at 2, verses 4 through 5. And this is one of many themes that we could look at, one of a couple themes that are the, that are the uh, predominant uh, flavor of this book. If you're going to bite into this fruit, you're going to taste this theme. Notice with me, verse 4. But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage, Oshel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. All right, let me give you a little bit more background on the, on the context. God's 42,000 people probably took them better half of a year to march in 538 from Babylon into Palestine. And you know, Palestine, and you know Jerusalem is on top of a mountain in the central mountain um, region of Palestine. And so they would have come down from the, the north on the, high, on the highway, which is through the mountains. They would have uh, circuitously worked their way there. And as they ran, got over that rise, the 42,000 people, you can just imagine singing perhaps, it doesn't say, but I can imagine them singing the Psalms of Ascents. Those hadn't been sung going to Passover for, for 70 years. And God's people not going to Passover, but going to see the promised land, uh, Jerusalem, uh, the city, and the temple. I can just imagine them singing and rejoicing as they entered into this glorious plateau. And as they came over the horizon, what they saw was more than discouraging. The temple, the city lay in ruins. The temple was decimated. It would take them seven months to clear the rubble off the temple mount. Seven months. That's how bad it was. So you can imagine the discouragement. Then you add to that, in the process of clearing the rubble off the temple mount, Ezra 4, 1 through 5, listen to the context. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel... They approached Jerobabel and the heads of the father's households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. We have been sacrificing to him since the days of, of Easter Haddon, king of Assyria, a.k.a. 2, Corinthians, or, or 2 Kings 17, 24 through 41. Read that text. That will give you who these people are. 2 Kings 17. Who brought us up here. These are the Samaritans. Easter Haddon, the way he kept order was by transporting. And when, when God's people in the northern kingdom were, went into exile in 722, in the, in the latter part or the early part of the 7th uh, century, Easter Haddon moved in all these people from various other uh, kingdoms. And you know this, because in that ancient world, you didn't want to offend the local deities, you would always adopt the local deities as your God. So these pagans came to. Palestine, and they adopted Yahweh as their God. But it was secretism. They meshed their paganism with Judaism, and you got the Samaritans. Okay? So these were the Samaritans. They came down and said, hey, we worship Yahweh too. We've been worshiping him now for 100 plus years, just like you. Let us help you build our temple. 
And we read, But Zerubbabel and Joshua and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. If you read 2 Kings 17, they were disdainfully viewed because they were compromisers. But we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of land, get this, discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So these people attacked the Jews the moment they weren't welcome, they turned their focus against them. We'll learn more about this as we go on looking at Zechariah. They were, they were horrible, horribly mean. In fact, God's people that steal a little thunder in Zechariah, they're rebuilding the temple with swords in one hand. It's so dangerous. If they don't rebuild with one hand building and the other with a sword, imagine building with a, a gun in your hand to protect yourself from ambush. That's how bad it was. So they get there. It's worse than they could have uh, you know, imagined. Then, then when they go about doing the work of zeal to rebuild, all of a sudden all the people attack them. And then on top of that, guess what, guys? A famine hits Palestine. 18 years. We read about it in Haggai 1 verse 10. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, the earth has withheld its produce, and I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, on all labor of your hands. So God's people, that was what they'd been experiencing when they first got there. So the temple went into a bane. You know what you do in that situation? In your flesh, naturally, you focus on yourself. Look, I try to do this, I get attacked. There's no food. I can barely do this. I can barely do, uh, do that. So you focus on yourself, and you become very self-absorbed. You build your home. You make your home nice. You make sure your kids love Jesus. But that's beyond all. You, you, you don't care about the bigger picture. It's over. And that's where God's people were when God came. Isaiah 59 describes it. We, as you know, 156 um, through 66 was a prophecy written to describe the returning exiles of Isaiah. And this is what we read. We hope for light, but behold darkness. This was the sentiment of God's people. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight among those who are vigorous. We're like dead men. This was their attitude. This was where they were. But brothers and sisters, redemptive history, as it goes, God's people were at a pivotal point in redemptive history. They didn't know it. And the reason why they were at this pivotal point, because of one massive theme that pervades Scripture, God is with his people. Hosea 2, 4b, I am with you, says the Lord your God. 5b, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. Brothers and sisters, this is a massive theme in the Bible, in the covenant of redemption, in the gospel. God is with us. This was the promise God gave to Abraham in Genesis, the promise that God gave to Isaac as he returned to his brother, to face his brother Esau. This is the promise God gave to Joshua. When he took over command after Moses, have I not command you, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the promise David took to heart when he was being in his, in his um, um, uh, a regency, right? Psalm 23, 4, um, 
you know, yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. This was the promise he gave to Solomon. God will be with you. Joseph, behold, the virgin shall be with child. She shall bear a son. They shall call his name, name Emmanuel, which translates God with us. That's the promise given to Joseph at the birth of Christ. This was the promise Christ gave his church when he exhorted them into, into ministry. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And the brothers and sisters, this is the, the climax of redemptive history. Revelation 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. Brothers and sisters, this is the covenant promise of God, and, and this is the promise I skipped over this on purpose. This is the promise that God gave to his people at another time in redemptive history. When they left civilizations, civilization, they left the security of home to follow God into a wilderness only to discover that all their glorious expectations were going to the promised land were completely destroyed as the pursuing army of the, of, the, um, of the Egyptians attacked them, and they were stuck against the Red Sea, and then, then they walked through it, and then it was shut, and then they're in this dry and horrible wilderness, and, and there they're staying for 40 years and 40 nights, and, or 40 years, 40 years and 40 nights. Um, 40 years, brothers and sisters, what a horrible, horrible time. And yet, you know what the promise God gave his people repeatedly throughout this time? This is the theme of the Exodus. Exodus 29, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell, dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. You know the theme of the Exodus? I will be with you. Now, for brothers and sisters, this theme means nothing to you. I know it does. and It means nothing to me who believe that if God is with us, then life will be easy. And I believe most of you, by default, have this idea that because God is sovereign and he is with us, because he's with us, life will be easy. Our dreams will be fulfilled. The world may perish, but we will do well on this side of the grave. That's, that's, our, that's our American theological milieu. That God loves us, has a wonderful plan for our lives, and that is going to be glorious and wonderful. In fact, you look at a Christian in comparison to a non-Christian, a man, they don't suffer cancer. They don't suffer depression. They don't have difficulties in their life. They don't lose their jobs like non-believers. That's how most, most you and I believe. We think that. Now, you know better in your minds but your default way down deep, that's what you believe. And so when you hear God with us, it means nothing to you because you and I both know it's a fake promise. Because Christians do get cancer and Christians do struggle and Christians do have hopelessness. What good is it, preacher, to know that the sovereign God's with me when my life is just as miserable, yea, even more miserable than the non-believer? Brothers and sisters, you and I have got to understand. First of all, any time God's sovereignty is declared in Scripture, I would say 95% of the time it's there to give you hope. It's, it, it, is, it is stated at times of difficulty and hardship. But God is sovereign. And that means something because he's a good God, which means this will turn out good, Genesis 50, 20. 
But secondly, brothers and sisters, you and I have got to come to grips with this reality. This world stinks because of man. you got to get this. We think this world stinks because God's ordained a difficult go. Brothers and sisters, you've missed it. This world is filled with sin and is miserable and people are hurt by it and people die miserable deaths because of our sin. Adam's sin. That's it. And do you know what the promise of God is, though? Get this. Non-believers die just like believers and believers die just like non-believers. And I'm not talking about how they die. I'm talking about the fact of their death. If you did a study, you would not find that there's a lower incidence of cancer amongst Christians versus non-Christians. Nor would you find depression. Nor would you find, name it. Christians are going, John 16, what is it? John uh, 16, uh, uh, 33. In the world, this is a statement. In the world, you have tribulations. This is not a promise it's, an, it's a divine observation. Christian, you're no different from a non-believer. In the world, you have pressure. Philipsis. In the world, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle with your health. You're going to struggle with your future, your jobs, your well-being, parenting, your marriages. Christians are not immune. But do you know what the difference between a believer is and a non-believer? God Almighty walks with you. See your bulletin. Look at verse 6. It's not noted. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed the river on foot. There let us rejoice in him. Do you know what that means? That means the psalmist is saying, Christian, your life is lived there. You're and I, you and I, we live being pursued by Pharisees, or by Pharisees, by uh, the Pharaoh. We live our lives pursued by the Egyptian army. We're haggard. We're frightened. We're scared. But that's where you rejoice in God. That's the point. That's what God with us is. It's not that life will be easy. It's that, yay, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, guess who's walking with you? And that's the point of Hosea or Haggai in 2.5, as the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. You know what's amazing? That promise made all the difference for those 42,000 Jews trying to rebuild that temple, and they did it. And they didn't know what we know from Scripture about God. What they knew from Scripture about God was minuscule compared to what you and I have. And yet that little promise made all the difference in their lives. Because now they looked on cancer differently. It's a portal into the lap of God. Loss of job, tragedy, difficulties. All of these are glorious portals into an intimacy with God that people in ease of life do not have. The difference between a believer and non-believer is not what happens in their lives. The difference is, is that you've got a good, kind, sovereign God who goes with you. 
We just sang a hymn. The secret place. You know what this is all about? The cleft in the rock. You go to that cleft, brothers and sisters. Read the lines. You go to that cleft. and Your life isn't easier. You still have trials and difficulties. But you've got the presence of a glorious, great God who dwells with you. And is there to uphold you and strengthen you and speak peace to your soul. One of my favorite Puritan Writers, Samuel Rutherford, we sing his uh, hymn that he didn't write. Someone else wrote it from his words. And the words are this, or his words. Welcome, welcome, cross of Christ, if Christ be with it. I've quoted that so many times to you. Brothers and sisters, this is a man who lost his wife, who lost his kids, who was, who was, he spent his entire ministerial life attacked by the, the people who should be his friends. He was beat up, tortured, uh, certainly um, emotionally, eventually died. And at his death, the church was after him. When he died, they uh, attacked him. And yet this man, whose life was compared to our lives, a cakewalk. His test was this, welcome, welcome, cross of Christ, and Christ be with it. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, you don't understand this promise that God gave his people, reminded his people of, that made all the difference. If you take it to heart, makes you see it isn't that life is going to be easier. It's going to be, rather, it's going to be hard. But the hardness is going to be filled with the joy of the Lord. So with Spafford, when peace like a river attendeth my way and sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, God, it's well with my soul. Why? Because I've got you. The question is, will you fight the good fight of faith? And will you maintain your trust and reliance upon God? Or will you, in the hard times, be just like Satan would have you be and give the testimony, God has, has done me wrong? Brother, he's not done you wrong. If anything, in life in America, you've been, you've been treated with kit gloves in comparison. Do you know today, the average, by right now, 13 Christians outside the United States lose their lives to persecution every day? You know, that's not a lot. Well, 13 times 7. What is that? 84? 84 Christians lost their lives since the last time we were worshiping here. Per average, 12 Christian churches are burned down a day in the world. I just read that this past week. We've had an easy go. Brothers and sisters, don't look at your, at your lot and go, why? why is, where's my money? Where's my, easy, where's my health? Where's my health, wealth, and, and all the other things that American Christianity promises? Expect fair, uh, um, difficult storms but in fair weather mend those sails and those sails are being mended by us today where we where we grow strong in faith and with Haggai trust the Lord our God that's the God who goes with you and and me all right that's a major theme of this book that's what creates zeal is when you and I don't just cognitively say God is with us but we actually take advantage of that We actually rely and commune and fellowship with the God in the midst of the storm who is with us. When that happens, brothers and sisters, struggled uh, with with dullness and 
and, and, and shallowness and, and hardness of heart melts away into a zeal, which leads to building a temple with a, a, a weapon in your hand to defend yourself with. May God give us the grace, brothers and sisters, by faith to fight that good fight and to cling to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible message that this prophecy is. I look forward to fellowshipping with you in the coming weeks. Lord, bless our time. Bless our study. But Lord, may it be blessed, not in the sense that we learn fun facts about Haggai. May this study be a blessed study in that we grow in our our walks with you. And our reliance upon you, our dependence upon you. And our willingness to say to Satan to an unbelieving world that says, curse God and die. God, may our response be, oh, no, far be it. For how could I curse a God who has given me so much? Lord, open our eyes to all that you are. Show us your glory. The glory of your love, the glory of your grace, the glory of your plan, the glory of your goodness, the glory of your sovereignty, of your holiness, of your majesty that we might indeed dwell in that secret place, the cleft of the rock, and find our all in all in you. We pray this in Jesus' name.